Christian Revelations is a completely free podcast for the new Christian looking to learn more about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and how to implement His teachings in our lives and the world today. And for the older Christian looking to dig deeper into the Word of God, edification, and the fellowship of the body of Christ. And now our host, Pastor Robert. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this beautiful day. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for those who are willing to show up and worship you openly without fear or worry. I thank you for those who are watching on Facebook who are here with us in spirit and in faith. I ask you, Lord, to watch over Barbara's brother-in-law, Mike, and Lay your healing hands on him. Help him to feel your strength in his life. I thank you, Lord, for your gift of salvation and your love and your presence in our life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Today we will be reading Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. But first, you'll have to be patient with me because... God asked me to write a little bit longer sermon than normal. Our stewardesses will be passing out pillows as you get tired. (laughs) There is no more frequently asked question today than this. Why did Jesus come to earth? We, as Christians, know why Jesus came to earth, and people know why we believe that Jesus came to earth, but people of the world still want to know why did he come and what difference does it make? Many different people have given many different answers to that question. Some people say that Jesus came to be an example of God's love. They say he came to show others what it is to be a good and holy person, to be that example that lifts all of us up. Many people say that he was the perfect teacher, the greatest teacher. Many people say he came to start a new religion, and a lot of scholars say that he was a reformist rabbi who came to purify Israel. Against all the theories of men and all the questions of atheists, skeptics, agnostics, and all in all, out unbelievers, we have the clear words from Jesus himself. It is found in Luke's gospel. It's a verse that every Sunday school child knows. Most of us know it by heart. In one simple sentence, we find a profound statement of why Jesus came to earth, and it's absolutely reliable because He's the one who told us. And though this isn't your reading, it's in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. All too often, we go through a great deal of effort to find things that we lost. If we lose a wedding ring down the sink, we'll climb underneath the sink, rip the drain apart in hopes of finding that ring. If we lose a dog, we will go days, weeks, even months 
searching for that lost dog. We will hang up signs on telephone poles, on bulletin boards, in social media. We will tell people, if you find my dog, I will pay you. I will reward you. Sadly, more often than not, we do not go through the same effort to find lost souls. Which brings us to our reading. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near, near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. The shepherd does not wait and say, when that sheep comes to its senses, it'll come home. I'll go look for it. I'll bring it back when it's ready. But that's not what Jesus tells us to do. He tells us to go find that one lost soul. The Pharisees treated sheep this way. It was taught by the Jews that before God would extend his love to them, they had to repent. It was their view that repentance is a work by which man earns the favor of heaven. And it was this thought that led the Pharisees to show their astonishment and their anger towards Jesus in saying, this man receives sinners. According to their ideas, he should permit no one to approach him unless they had repented. But the parable of the lost sheep teaches us that salvation does not come from us seeking God. It comes from God seeking after us. Lee, we often say, you need to change. I think you should change, and then everything will be okay. The Pharisees taught that there is rejoicing in heaven when one who sinned against God is destroyed. That is an out-and-out -out lie. Jesus did not teach that. The Bible says in Ezekiel 33:11, Say to them, as I live, say the, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Very often a person who has wandered in sin and has decided to come back to the Lord encounters all kinds of suspicion and distrust and criticism. People say, I'm not sure that their repentance is genuine. We'd better wait and we'll see how they are. And that's how many people are. They stand back and they just watch. 
That is the condition of a lot of churches today. And this is the reason that there is a multitude of sinners out there that will not darken the church's door because they are afraid to come in. When someone who has wandered far in sin wants to return to God, they will encounter this distrust. There are those who will doubt whether their repentance is genuine, and they will say they have no stability. I don't believe that they will hold out. These people are not doing the work of God, but the work of Satan, who is the accuser of brethren. Revelations 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Through criticism, Satan hopes to discourage that soul from returning and to drive them further away from hope and further away from God. We must let that repenting sinner rejoice in the knowledge that heaven is rejoicing in their return. Let them rest in the love of God and in no way discourage them by, the, by scorning them or having suspicions or being self-righteous. The devil has plenty of self-righteous people around. And he has, he has them scattered throughout the church. And sadly, far too few people who truly have sympathy for those who are tempted and lost. If we are going to save the lost, we must have a heart that is filled with mercy and the love of Jesus and not a heart that is vindictive and always seeking to point out or discover the mistakes in others. Jesus then gave us the parable of the lost coin in Luke 15, 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The reason that Jesus told the stories and described the lost the way he did are some people who are lost like the sheep. They know they're lost, but they can't find their way back, and they will never find their way back unless somebody goes and searches for them. Many households today have members that attend church and they go through the motions of Christianity, but they are not vitally connected to Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. They are lost, but like the coin, they don't know that they're lost. Jesus didn't come to please the religious crowds. Jesus didn't come to pander to the social crowd. Instead, Jesus came to earth to save 
sinners. When we look back over the Gospels, we see that Jesus reaches out to all people, men and women, young and old, powerful, forgotten, demon-possessed, and unlike some of us, the politically people. Wow, those political people. It's hard to reach out for them, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus came to save sinners of all shapes, all sizes, and all stripes. When we look at the Bible as a whole, we see that the most prominent theme in the Bible is the work of God to save those who are without God. The Bible emphasizes and stresses what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. From Genesis to Revelations, we find one obvious and continuous theme working its way from book to book. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, came to earth to save sinners. Paul stresses these words. He says, this is faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance. Basically, he's saying, this is true. Are you ready? Listen carefully. Write it down. Eight words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There it is. Summed up, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It could not be any clearer than that. The Bible speaks on a lot of subjects. It gives us answers about issues of morality and ethics. It tells us how to find joy, how to raise our children, how to handle our money, and so much more. But its central purpose is to lay the groundwork for and then record for eternity the most e important event of the ages that Jesus Christ would come into the world to save sinners. For those of us who think that we are in the clear, Romans 3, 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12 says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have pre-charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Nobody likes to be called a sinner. Nobody likes to be called out in public or in private about the things that we do that are contrary to the two greatest commandments. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. When we follow Jesus to his trial and we see his wounded head, when we see his pierced side, when we see his mangled feet, when we see and recognize that all heaven was put in jeopardy so that Jesus could save mankind, then we will start to comprehend the worth of a soul. If we ever begin to understand the value of a soul and realize that the soul is worth more than a world of material things, we will then begin to have the heart of a shepherd. Every aspect of our work is vital and significant because we are dealing with souls. Just one soul is more important than the entire world. If we are going to lead souls to faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we must have the heart of a shepherd. The Pharisees said, this man receives sinners. They said it with scorn. They said it with anger. They said it with hatred, distrust, and suspicion, and wicked insinuation. But they told the truth. This man does receive sinners. Do we receive sinners? I would have to say yes, because you guys received me. If we have the heart of a shepherd, we will be going to search and bring back sinners to the house. We may never bring back very many unless we have the love of Jesus in our hearts. Unless we have the love of a shepherd, the heart of a shepherd. When we have the heart of a shepherd, we will not be criticizing the lost, but we will doing whatever we can to bring them back to the Father's house. If we want to understand the worth of a human being that is lost, go to the garden at the foot of Mount Olives in Jerusalem, where according to the Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus underwent agony in the garden and was arrested that night before his crucifixion. That is where we see our Savior enduring not seconds, not minutes, but hours of agony. He suffered a superhuman agony that we will never comprehend. And he suffered it all because he loves us. And he would see all of us saved. As I said earlier, it was taught by the Jews that before God's love was extended to a sinner, he must first repent. In their view, repentance is a work by which men earn their way into heaven and earn God's favor. But we cannot earn the favor of heaven. Nothing we have done or will do can earn favor 
from God or entrance into heaven. Like Paul said, not of works, lest any man should boast. John chapter 6 verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Greek word translated draw is elkiu, which means to drag, literally and figuratively. This drawing is most definitely a one-sided affair. God does the drawing to salvation, and we who are drawn do have a passive role in the process. But there is, there is no doubt that we respond to the drawing, but the drawing itself is all on his part. El Kiyu is used in John 21.6 to refer to a heavy net full of fish being dragged to shore. In John 18.10, we see Peter drawing his sword. In Acts 16.19, it is, described to, it is described for Paul and Silas being dragged into the marketplace before the rulers. Obviously, that net had no part of dragging itself in. Peter's sword had no part in drawing itself. And Paul and Silas did not drag themselves in front of the rulers. The same can be said of God's drawing of some to salvation. Some come willingly. Others are dragged unwillingly. But all who are drawn eventually come. Why does God need to draw us to salvation? Simply put, if he didn't, we would never come. Jesus explains in John 6, 65, and he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. When Jesus says that no man can come without God's drawing him, he is making a statement about the total depravity of the sinner and their universal condition. Oh, is the soul of the unsaved that we do not even realize it. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It is only by the merciful and gracious drawing of God that we are saved. In conversion of a sinner, God enlightens the mind. He inclines their will towards them and he influences the soul. Without that influence, the soul remains darkened and rebellious against God. All of this is involved in the drawing process. Passages such as Psalm 19, 1 through 4, and Romans 1:20 attests to the fact that God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen and understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. But we still deny God. And those who acknowledge his existence, still do not come to a saving knowledge of him without him 
drawing them. There are tangible ways in which we who are being or have been drawn to salvation experience that drawing. First, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins and, our, and informs us of our need of a Savior. Second, He awakens us inside of us a previously unknown interest in spiritual things and creates a desire for them that we never had before. Suddenly, our ears are open, our hearts are inclined towards Him, the words begin to hold new and exciting meaning and fascination Our spirits begin to discern spiritual truth that never made sense before. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, we read, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can we know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Finally, we begin to have new desires. He places in us a new heart that is inclined towards Him, a heart that desires to know Him, obey Him, and walk in the newness of life that He has promised. None of us are going to heaven alone. We need a shepherd's heart. We need the mercy and love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in our hearts. And we need to be searching for lost sheep. Remember, we are all sinners saved by the grace of God. Our worst days are never so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. And our good days are never so good that they are beyond the need for God's grace. Our first verse today was Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus says, I have come, present tense, to seek and save, present tense, that which was lost, past tense, not is lost, was lost. So what was lost? Most are painfully aware of how much crime and violence and sin and depravity exists in our world today. If you don't realize it, turn on the evening news. It will be there every night from now till the end. Christians see this as the effects of sin in the world. We know that it is the result of fallen man. The situation persists because too many people love the darkness rather than the light. John 13, 9 says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But there was a time when the world was sinless. What was it like before the fall, before 
Adam and Eve disobeyed God and brought sin into the world. Using the Bible and my wonderful imagination, the Garden of Eden would have been a paradise that apparently needed no rain because it was watered from a mist that came up from the ground. Genesis 2.6 says, But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. There would be no storms, no harmful natural disasters. Everything about God's creation would have been perfect. Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 says, Then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. What God says is very good cannot have any flaws whatsoever. Therefore, the world in which Adam and Eve lived would have been the perfect temperature, the perfect humidity, without pests, without diseases, without anything that would detract from their enjoyment of knowing God in a perfect and undiluted way. This is what is meant by the word paradise. Adam and Eve lived a life of blissful innocence. They had never sinned, so they had no guilt or shame. This was the life that God intended for us. No mortal since the Garden of Eden had such a clear heart and clear conscience. This is a model to be emulated and a preview of what awaits Christians in the future. Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever lived after the fall who was sinless. Everyone else experiences the shame and guilt of being unclean before a holy God. The only way this shame and guilt can be dealt with is by trusting in the good news that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. He died on a cross so that we might be forgiven, so that we won't have that sin that separates us from God. Adam and Eve enjoyed a relationship with God and with each other that was not hindered by the disruptive power of sin. The Bible even indicates that God may have taken physical form and come down and walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 3.8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. What an amazing thing to be able to do. Adam and Eve were the only two people on earth and they were privileged in a way that no one has ever been since. They met and they communed regularly with the creator of the universe. This is not out of the question when we remember that there is no sin present to prevent that kind of relationship. The fellowship they enjoyed with God was not hindered by anything. For those of us who trust 
in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Bible indicates that a new pre-fall Eden awaits us. When we follow Jesus, our heart and conscience are cleansed, cleansed because we become like the first two people. The new heaven and earth spoken of in the book of Revelation is thought, thought of by many to be a recreation of, the new, of a new universe. The future, places, the future place for us holds a home for us, for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It will be a new Eden, one without the presence and problems of sin. Whether we, and whether we hold to this interpretation or not, it is a biblical fact that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we immediately become a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. God has provided a way for us to be free from guilt and shame that accompanies sin. God sent His Son to die for us and pay the penalty for those sins. All we have to do is trust Him and trust Him with our lives and honor Him and serve Him the way He meant for us to do. In that, we will be forgiven of our sins. A new Eden will be awakened in our hearts, and we will once again have the kind of relationship that God meant in the beginning. What was lost was our personal relationship with our God, the creator of the universe. Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior came to seek and save that relationship so that all who believe in Him will have eternal life. Have you ever heard something that was just way too good not to share? I heard something yesterday. It's not really part of the sermon. It's not doesn't tie into it anyway, but it's a... I, I loved what I heard, and I changed it a little bit to make it mine. <laughs> if you were to put a basketball in my hands, it would be worth maybe 10 bucks. But if you were to put it in the hands of Michael Jordan, it would be worth $40 million. If you were to put a football in my hands, it might be worth 15 bucks. But if you were to put it in the hands of Peyton Manning, it would be worth $50 million. It all depends on whose hands it's in. If you were to give me a golf club, in my hands it would be worth about 23 cents. <laughs> but if you were to give it to Tiger Woods, it would be worth $80 million. It all depends on whose hands it's in. If you were to give me a baseball bat, could be worth about 20 bucks. Put it in the hands of Mickey Mantle and who knows how much it would be worth. If you were to give me a stick, I might be able to scare off a coyote or two. But if you were to give it to Moses, he could part the Red Sea with it. 
It all depends on whose hands it's in. If you were to give me a slingshot, I could probably knock over a tin can or two. But if you were to give it to King David, he could kill a giant. It all depends on whose hands it's in. If you were to give me two fish and five loaves of bread, I'd have lunch with some bread left over. You give it to Jesus, he would feed thousands. If you were to give me a couple of nails, I could probably build you a birdhouse or maybe nail my thumb to the floor. <laughs> but if you were to put those same nails in Jesus' hands, it would lead to salvation and eternal life for those who love him and trust him. If you were to take all your cares and all your worries, your frustrations and your sadnesses, and leave them in your own hands, that's all they'll ever be. But if you take those cares and worries and problems and put them in the hands of Jesus, he will see you through. If you were to ask me to seek and save that which was lost, I may find a hundred people in my lifetime. But if you ask Jesus to do it, he would save the world. Thank you for choosing Christian Revelations. We hope you were just as blessed in receiving the message as we were in preparing and delivering it. As always, we will welcome you back again with open arms, open hearts, open minds, and open Bibles with your host, Pastor Robert. Blessings to you all.